This season covers an abduction and murder that occurred in Middleburg, Florida in January of 1990. It's a true story, and I have relied heavily on public documents and interviews with family and people close to the investigation in order to tell it. As always, the credibility of the interviewees, as well as my own credibility as I relay the information that I have gleaned, is to be determined by you, the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Terrell Orchid's killer has never been caught, and today the Clay County Sheriff's Office posted a plea online asking for information in her death. New at 6, Action News Jack's Bridget Matter shows us why family fears they'll never learn who the killer is. Terrell Orcutt was 26 years old when she was murdered. In January of 1990, her red car was found on the side of County Road 218 in Middleburg, still running inside her purse and a spilled drink. Where her car was pulled over at, it was so desolate. There was no moon. It was one of those pitch black nights. Rumors swirled that an officer had pulled the 26-year-old over, but the Clay County Sheriff's Office says all their officers were accounted for that day. Terrell's ex-husband and boyfriend were cleared as suspects. The case is now close to 30 years cold, and Cheryl is only left with the memories of her sister. Now I promised my mom I would push and push until we found out I could get some reason why, if we could find out why they murdered her. And the hope that one day they might find out who killed Terrell. Bridget Matters, CBS 47, Fox 30, Action News, Jax. She was driving home from her boyfriend's. How far yeah. physically was that from he her lived, house? He, oh, by the way, he lived in Jacksonville Beach, Jacksonville, Florida, and she lived out in Middleburg. I think it takes like 20, maybe 30 minutes to get from one to the other. But Cheryl says she never would have drove that way. She drove that way every day. Okay, so that was a familiar route for her then. Yeah, she worked in downtown Jacksonville. Okay. So she drove past the Denny's on Blanding Boulevard, which I, I worked at the Denny's on Blanding Boulevard at that time. And she would drive, sometimes she'd stop in and see me. And she drove past the Denny's up Blanding Boulevard. She would turn on, you know, 218 and go home that way. Terrell, whose life was on the upswing, young, ambitious, about to be promoted at SunTrust Bank, her life had been viciously ended. The investigation began, first by looking at how her Thunderbird was found and her injuries. With the driver's side window down, could her broken clavicle be from someone reaching through the window and violently pulling her out? And why was she on 218 in the first place? Her sister says her route home should have been 295 to 103rd, then south on County Road 217. And what about those words? I didn't do it, witnesses heard. And where her body was found on Lee Road, a dirt road that just connects back to Blanding. You gotta think, who knew to put her there? So someone, you know, was familiar with the area. Over the decades, numerous investigators have looked over this case, adding on to the already large case file. Detective Rob Schoonover says there have been a lot of persons of interest, but no specific suspects. For 15 years, I went around saying, I think a cop did it or a cop's kid. Maybe he took his dad's car, you know, or something like that. Right. Um, and they were covering it up. And 
they were like, we don't understand. We don't get it. Why would she say that? And I was like, well, this, 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 and this. Was the presumption or the sort of thought that it might have been a police officer because of the fact that she was stopped on the side of the road and someone was able to get her out of that car? Was that the main reason why someone you guys were well, thinking that it was no, law enforcement? I don't jump. I don't jump. I'm not that kind of person to just jump to conclusions like that. Like I said, I used to be a law enforcement officer, and I'm that kind of person anyway that I would research and study things. I don't just think, oh, well, this person says this or that happened, so it must have been this. Because there, there's always the other side of the coin. There can always be something else. The thing about it, let me see if I have the facts straight here. I'm looking at a picture of her car. The picture uh -huh. shows the passenger door open, not the driver's door, the passenger door. Right. Which immediately does not scream law enforcement to me. That immediately screams someone was standing at the driver's door and sh and then they, either someone else came to the passenger door or she was trying to get out the passenger door. I don't... Yeah, my mom opened the passenger door. So it was not open when, when they came up to the door? No. There were no doors open? Well, they don't know. This is where, this is another one of the many mistakes that, that were made. He got in the car. He got out of the car. He rolled the windows up. He rolled the windows down. He opened the doors. He shut the doors. When they questioned him, he couldn't remember when he got to the crime scene. That, where her car was found, is the first crime scene. Okay? He did not secure this crime scene. And he was newish. Yeah, I've, I've covered a couple so cases I like kind of feel, I, you know, I kind of understand that, but in police academy, they teach you this before they put you out on the street. They teach, this what I mean by 101. This is police work 101. When you come upon a car that's running and there, you look in the window and you see a purse open with credit cards and money, and the car is running with its headlights on in the middle of BFB in the dark. And you call that plate in and find out it belongs to a young girl. You automatically get suspicious or you shouldn't be a cop. On January 21st, 1990, the closest available weather station to Middleburg, Florida was a naval air station at Cecil Field in Jacksonville. The high temperature that day was around 84 degrees and the low was listed at 60. There was also fog and early morning drizzle noted in some of the surrounding areas. Officer Howell of the Clay County Sheriff's Office was dispatched to the Jiffy Store located on State Road 21 and County Road 218 in Middleburg, Florida. The time on his report is listed as 8 a.m. Quote, Upon arrival, I was contacted by the complainant. He advised that he was on his way to the Jiffy store when he passed the victim vehicle sitting on the side of the road with no one around and headlights on. The complainant drove past the vehicle and went on to the Jiffy store. Upon leaving the store to return, he came upon that vehicle again, still sitting on the side of the road. The complainant stopped to see if he could help. He discovered the vehicle unlocked, windows down, engine running, headlights on, and the victim's purse in the front seat. The vehicle was abandoned. The complainant looked around and called out for someone, but no one came. The complainant removed the victim's purse 
and secured the vehicle. Officer Howell then noted that the keys were also still in the ignition, with the vehicle running, according to the complainant, who, by the way, was a man who lived in the area and had simply been driving past that morning and had become concerned, so he drove back to the Jiffy store and called police. The vehicle in question is a 1989 two-door red Ford Thunderbird, and I have to assume that by secured, the officer means that the man turned the car off, removed the keys, and locked the doors. Unfortunately, I can't be sure of that. And there's a lot of things I can't be sure of regarding the state of the vehicle that morning. Nor can law enforcement handling this case today, and that's because the officer did not make a record of how he first observed the vehicle when he arrived at the scene, after the concerned citizen had essentially locked it up and gone to report it. Unfortunately, when reports are not written succinctly, we have to rely on assumptions. And if there's one thing that I've learned while researching cold cases is that assumptions can lead to cases going astray. Not to mention that way on down the line when a prosecutor is preparing a case, they're not going to look too kindly on assumptions because it makes their job a lot harder. What Officer Howell did note in his report when he arrived is that the car was parked facing west on the north shoulder of County Road 218 about 50 feet west of the driveway of a nearby residence. According to the report, when he called in the tag, Officer Howell learned that the car was registered to, quote, the victim's mother and brother. I need to mention here that the victim's sister disputes this fact that the car was registered to her brother at the time. She believes that it was registered in her mother and sister's names. Now, I have to assume that an officer wouldn't just add someone to the registration information on his report out of the blue. I don't know that he would have any way of knowing that the victim had a brother, first of all, and I can't really see any reason for him doing so. But you will notice that I'm using that little word assume again because I don't like to say anything positively for sure unless I know something positively for sure. What we can say for certain by both accounts is that at least one of the names on the registration that Officer Howell found in the car was not on the identification that was inside the abandoned vehicle. Inside the purse would have been the driver's license of 26-year-old Terrell Steele Orcutt. At this point, Officer Howell would have no way of knowing if one or more people had been in that car before it had been left abandoned. All he knows right now is that he's got an abandoned car, and he's got a title that has some information that's different than the ID in the purse, although I suspect that the address on the title and the ID may have been the same because Terrell did live with her mother. It seems clear to me, based on my reading of the report, is that what the patrolman felt that he had encountered, at least initially, wasn't necessarily an urgent crime scene, but perhaps just an abandoned vehicle. I do think it's important to put ourselves in his place for a minute, though, and think about what he saw when he arrived on the scene. Because initial impressions, visual and otherwise, are important in how we as humans react to what we're seeing. Police are trained to look at things differently, yes, certainly more critically, and one might argue with a heavy dose of suspicion that leans toward possible foul play in any situation, at least until they can prove otherwise. The reason for that, and it's a good reason as far as I'm concerned, is that reacting in that way, at least as far as securing a possible crime scene, keeps evidence from being destroyed or rendered moot. You only get one shot at processing a crime scene for the first time, and what you want is a crime scene that'll provide evidence technicians 
who are gathering information with a scene that's as close as possible to how it was initially encountered. What you want is time to stop. Right there, click, click, stop. So that all of the evidence, right after any crime, is held in suspension. That's not usually what we get. I tend to wonder if because that vehicle wasn't running when Officer Howell showed up, his perception of that scene wasn't what it would have been if he had driven up himself and seen it, just as the first witness did, a car running with the keys inside, and the headlights cutting through the darkness, and the windows down. Yes, it was dark when the witness first encountered it, but when he showed up an hour later, it wasn't dark anymore. A car running in the dark would have a slightly ominous feel. A fully secured vehicle in the light of day would present a lot differently. Obviously, a running vehicle with no operator screams something not good happened here. And what the patrolman probably should have done, as soon as he was told that's how it was found, was called for backup and secured the scene first, rather than inviting more people into it. But that's not what he did. What he did was he called the tag in, and he asked dispatch to get him the contact number associated with the information on the title, at which point Terrell's mother was called, and the officer asked her to respond to the scene. I was told by family members that she didn't even get dressed. She just threw something on over her nightgown and headed right there. Clearly she knew something wasn't right. Her daughter didn't come home that night, which might not have been so unusual, but her car sitting on the side of the road with her purse inside? Well, that absolutely was. So now we've got the mother of the possible victim showing up at the crime scene and wondering what the hell is going on. She's walking around the car, opening the doors, poking around inside, moving around what would eventually be considered evidence. Evidence that had already been touched by that first witness who encountered the vehicle, innocently opening the door and looking inside, and then grabbing the purse and closing the windows, taking the keys and purse and locking it. All he wanted to do was make sure that the car was left safe until he could get an officer there. But that's a whole lot of touching going on, and it's all unhelpful. The officer explained to Terrell's mother how the car had been found and everything that he had learned up to that point. She said that her daughter had gone out with a man named Mike the night before and was supposed to have spent the night with him, as far as she knew. She was instantly worried because she said her daughter would have never left the vehicle like it was found. It was clear to her that something bad had happened. She knew it. She knew right away. So the next thing that Officer Howell did was he sent Terrell's mother back home to get Mike's phone number. They needed to talk to Mike. That makes sense. Let's talk to the last person who was supposed to have been with her and see what we can find out from there. While she did that, the officer began to canvass the nearby houses which were few and not super close to one another like a residential street. He spoke with five witnesses that morning, right after sending Terrell's mother home. Detective Jerry Bay, who would later arrive, notes in his report that he was called to the scene at approximately 10 a.m. Based on the 8 a.m. time given in his own report, it appears that Officer Howell may have done his canvassing before he made that call, given the two-hour lapse in time and that's backed up by Detective Bay's summary of the information that he received when he arrived at the scene. But we'll get to that in a second. 
County Road 218 was not highly populated like a subdivision. It still isn't. There were, and still are, sections of nothing but trees on either side, very sparsely populated. Terrell's car was found about six miles from where she lived with her mother. So she was almost home when whatever happened to her happened. After sending Terrell's mother back home to fetch Mike's number, Officer Howell went to the home of a couple whose house was closest to where Terrell's car was found. The report notes that their driveway was about 50 feet west of the abandoned vehicle. This couple would become important witnesses to the timeline of events, for quite a few reasons, actually. What they saw and heard would not only nail down the timeline, but what had occurred just before Terrell was abducted from the side of the road. The couple said that around 5.30 that morning, they had been abruptly awakened by the sound of tires screeching. After a few moments, they heard a female yell, I didn't do anything. In fact, the husband insisted she'd said it twice. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. By the time he got up and he got to the door and stepped outside, he saw what appeared to be a white top to a vehicle with the inside light on speed away. The report notes that this witness thought it was a station wagon or Trooper 2 truck due to the fact that he could see its top over the high grass and bushes between his house and the road. Initially, I had no idea what the notation Trooper 2 meant, so I did a quick Google search. I learned that Isuzu made a SUV called the Trooper 2, so I assume that's what this witness was likely referring to. It was first produced between 1981 and 1991, and then the second generation produced between 91 and 2002. This incident occurred in 1990, so the timeline fits. I've heard from different witnesses that it could also have been a pickup truck or another type of SUV as well, something with a body or cab that was higher than a standard vehicle. And that makes sense, because if the witness said that there was high grass and bushes between his house and the road, you'd need a little bit taller of a car in order to see that. The witness said that he and his wife didn't see or hear anything else, so after that they went back to bed. So this helps us with the beginning of our timeline. 5.30 a.m. is when they are both jarred out of bed by the sound of tire screeching. Officer Howell contacted another resident whose driveway was about 100 feet from where Terrell's vehicle was left. This was a 45-year-old male who had a paper route in Middleburg and had left his house that morning at around 1.30 a.m. When he returned later, around 5.50 a.m., he saw the vehicle parked on the side of the road. He said that he went inside his house, and at some point he looked out a window and didn't see the car, so he thought it may have left. But that is unlikely, because according to multiple sightings, it was still there for hours. A third neighbor was contacted, but he said he hadn't heard or seen anything that morning. But already we've got a pretty tight timeline. Whatever happened to Terrell, based on the two witness statements that lined up, it happened between 5.30 and 5.50. Now, during all this canvassing, Terrell's mother is at home getting that phone number from Mike, and it appears that she may have made a few calls, calls that lit up the Middleburg grapevine. By the time that Detective Jerry Bay responded to the location of the vehicle sometime after 10 a.m., Terrell's mother, her sister, and some friends were there. Mike, Terrell's current boyfriend, arrived at the scene as well. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you're the detective called to a scene because the patrolman, who had found an abandoned vehicle, decided after talking to the neighbors that 
they may have something other than just an abandoned vehicle. Imagine coming onto that scene and finding the largest piece of evidence, that vehicle, surrounded by onlookers, and they're all walking around in the sand, likely destroying any footprints, if those footprints ever existed. Detective Bay unfortunately had noted in his report that when they went to look for any related foot impressions, they weren't able to get anything because of all the foot traffic that had occurred around the car. No impressions of value could be determined. Officer Howell briefed Detective Bay on the information that he had gleaned, and then the detective examined the vehicle himself. His report indicates that he found no evidence of a struggle, but he did note, quote, a plastic cup which had contained a soda beverage was lying down on the console with the contents spilled toward the driver's side of the vehicle. Now, I don't want to nitpick, but to me, that does indicate some sort of disruption, but I think the detective meant that other than the cup, there were no signs indicating a struggle. Terrell's sister and her mother had also confirmed that they had seen a thin film of what they called dust on the car, and it showed no signs of smudges or anything that you would associate with a struggle that had occurred when someone had slammed into or rubbed up against the vehicle. The only problem I see with that is the weather report that morning. It had suggested fog in the area and possible precipitation or drizzle. If that film was the result of dust that had been kicked up combined with precipitation, which most native Floridians are well aware of, if that had settled on the car since the time it was parked on the side of the road that morning after Terrell was abducted, that could lead visually to a false impression once they got there hours later. Detective Bay noted that the left driver's side tires were on the very edge of the pavement and the body of the vehicle showed no signs of damage or other suspicious marks. Also importantly, the tire tracks made by the vehicle, he said, showed no signs that it had skidded to a stop, which would have been fairly evident in the sand where the car had been found. There are crime scene pictures of that vehicle that show a patrol vehicle parked immediately behind it, which indicates to me that it's also very likely that any tracks that may have been put there by the perpetrator's vehicle could have been driven right over by the sheriff's department's vehicle. And I'd say that's a shame, but you have to remember that we don't even have a strong statement from the initial patrolman that noted whether he or the conscientious citizen who had stopped by to check the situation had parked in front or behind Terrell's vehicle already. It is likely that one or both of them had. I can't imagine either one of them having left their car parked in the right lane of a two-lane road while they checked out the abandoned Thunderbird. That bullet, as they say, was long out of the gun. At the scene, Detective Bay spoke with a friend of Terrell's named Kathy. She said Terrell was extremely cautious about pulling off the road and stopping for anybody. She told him her friend had no personal problems with anyone that she knew of, and she did not use drugs or drink alcohol. He also spoke with Terrell's mother, who told him that her daughter had left the night before around 7.15 p.m. and went to Mike's house. She noted that it was not uncommon for Terrell to stay out until the early morning hours and then return home. Mike told the detective that Terrell got to his house in Jacksonville around 8 p.m. They had intended to go out, but then eventually decided to stay home for the evening. She left around 10 to 5 in the morning, and he said that he had even gone out to her car and started it, checking to make sure that she had enough gas to make it home. 
He said that she had about a quarter of a tank and he knew that was enough to get her home. One thing we know for sure is that the car was running when it was found, so it had not run out of gas. At this point, the detective and the officer began a physical search of the area for any possible evidence, and that was around 12.30 in the afternoon. Apparently, Mike, the boyfriend, had made it to the scene by that time because the report notes that it was he who found a broken piece of eyeglasses on the south side of the road opposite the car, about 30 feet from the vehicle. A continued search located the two lenses and pieces of the frame. Mike was able to identify them as Terrell's glasses. Um, I was told that three days later, Mike, the guy she dated, went out there and found her bloody glass and broken glasses. Now, how do you find evidence three days later at the first crime scene? And, and it's him finding them and not the cops, you know, so that I don't know if that's true or not. Who told you I that? Was, I was told that several times. By, um, by law enforcement? Yes. I mean, they do say in the press that her glasses were found, what, 50 feet or something, but they don't say who found them. They just said that they were found like 50 feet from where the vehicle yeah, the was. Guy, the guy that she was out with that night found them three days later. You didn't ever ask him? No. And hmm. I broke into his house. That I can tell you. I, the cops, I finally told them like 10 years later. But, well, they I told them the day it happened, too. Um, my brothers came, my one brother came out from Utah, and my little brother and my older brother and Cheryl, I think Cheryl stayed home with Mom, but um, they took him out to play pool and so I could break into his house and check his house out because we already knew the cops weren't doing their job. Mm-hmm. And this was when we did not know where Carolyn was. We just knew something was wrong. Oh, so we, before they found her body, you did that well. You... Before they found her body. Now, his car was parked at our at mom's house, and his car was trash inside, you know, wrappers and stuff like that, just a bunch of junk, really messy. You'd have had to move shit out of the floor in order to sit in there, right? So I go into his house, and it's fresh painted. It's a six-year-old house. It's only six years old since it's been built from the ground up. And it's six years old, and it's been fresh painted after six years. And I've lived in this apartment that I'm in right now for 15 years, and I haven't painted it yet. I painted it when I moved in. You could smell the paint? It was that fresh? You could smell it? Oh. The carpets were brand fresh new clean there were still lines in the carpet no footprints in the carpet the carpet still had lines in it from where they were just shampooed and vacuumed and this is like four days after she's been missing you know because it took us that long to go let's go check out his house because it's obvious the cops ain't going to do anything because we didn't know we were grabbing at anything and everything trying to find her yeah i went into his bedroom And the first thing I noticed was it was a queen-sized mattress, box spring, queen-sized box spring, a full-sized mattress. I thought that was odd. No sheets, no pillowcases, nothing. And I said, why would you have a full-sized mattress on a box spring? So red flags are going up. Hmm. I opened this closet, and I, I literally measured with a tape measure that I got out of his garage. 
Um, and he has a dog. Um, the dog was in the garage. Um, his clothes, his clothes hangers were exactly an inch and a half apart. Oh. All his clothes were neatly wrapped in cellophane, like uh, cleaners, like they'd all just came from the cleaners, and hanging an inch and a half apart all the way down in the closet. Yeah, that's I go creepy. into the bathroom. I go into the bathroom. Now, this house is six years old, and the toilet is not there. The sink's not there. And I'm like, the bathtub is, but... So I'm on my hands and knees looking. There's nothing. It's spotless. But it's being demolished. You know, the tile's all torn up. The walls are torn up. Um, and it's nighttime, too. But I'm looking. The lights are on. I don't care. I go into the spare bedroom. There's a big roll of carpet there, which days later I had a nightmare. She was rolled up in this carpet. Hmm. I think I was kicking myself for not unrolling the carpet. She wasn't rolled up in the carpet because if she was, then she'd had carpet fibers on her, but right. she wasn't. But then again, they weren't doing their job, so she might have had carpet fibers on her and they didn't find them. I don't know. So, um, anyway, um, there was rolled up brand new carpet. Why would you do that? You got a brand new house here, you know? So I go into the regular bathroom where he said that she combed her hair and put it up in a banana clip. You remember those? I don't mm -hmm. know. You might oh, not be Oh, yeah. I wore them. Oh, yeah. Okay, she wore banana clips, and she put her hair up in a banana clip, put her makeup on, and went out to her car. And so I looked. I couldn't find an eyelash. I couldn't find a hair. I couldn't find anything. I looked in the drain. Nothing. This thing was, I'd never seen a house so clean. So when I went out to the bath board, uh, rewind, when I went to the garage to get the measuring tape, I noticed all his tools were neatly lined up, just like his closet, and they had little things drawn on the pegboards where each tool went, they were all perfectly lined up, spotless garage, the dog wagged his tail, I petted him, I'm like, I guess you don't ever go in the house, because there ain't even a dog hair in there, hmm. and um, so I finished, and I went home, and I told the police that I broke into his house while they took him out. He never suspected a thing. And, um, <laughs> I really and, like uh, you, Meryl. <laughs> I'm different than my rest of my family. I am. I, I was cut from a different cloth, I guess. I take more after my dad. <laughs> but anyway, and uh, now Mike, we'll fast forward to that because we did suspect him. He was the last one to see her alive. That when they did the autopsy, they did find some uh, shrimp in her stomach that he had fed her. He cooked shrimp for her dinner that night at his house. Um, and he, they had shrimp that he cooked. And she was undigested. So the shrimp hadn't completely digested in her tummy when they found her body. Mm -hmm. um, so she was, you know, murdered quite recently after eating, you know, the shrimp. Yeah. Um, Mike passed five polygraphs. He was interviewed and interrogated, oh, probably 40, 50 hours by several different people, interrogators and stuff. And they are pretty convinced that he knows nothing, that he was completely innocent and we made his life hell. We ruined his life. 
pretty much. And I remember telling my mom that if he's innocent, that really sucks if his life is ruined because all he did was cared about her. And she would not like that. There's something I encounter in pretty much every case that I cover. And that is family, friends, the public, and often the press share information that's not accurate. It's usually not done with malice of any kind. They just don't have the facts. And police aren't generally disposed to fact-checking the public in real time in order to keep incorrect theories from gaining traction in the public consciousness. This is something that I think often leads to stories and misrepresentations regarding the facts, which can truly harm a case that's not quickly solved. I have seen it in literally every cold homicide I have studied. Every one. And that's why I keep mentioning it every time. It's only been the last couple of years that they've actually, or last year even, that they released about the soda in the car. Um, That's why Cheryl didn't, she still refuses to believe that Cheryl stopped at a convenience store. Um, But she actually, there was a spilt soda, one of those big gulps. Okay. That was spilt over in the cup holder. All right. And And we, we think that that was a, part of a struggle probably. yeah that sounds like it and now the other question i had was all the online reports say her purse was in the driver's seat that doesn't make sense was it in the driver's seat no it was in the passenger seat my okay. mom took it out of the passenger seat gotcha. it was next to her in the passenger seat this is why i tell people all the time if you're reading stuff online that doesn't mean it's true <laughs> i want you guys to know i want the public to understand the part that we play in this phenomenon i think it's important for all of us to remember as we read the newspaper or scan social media, listen to the news or podcasts, you might not be getting every detail right if you are relying on information that has been passed through the ether like that old game of telephone where one person tells a story and the next and the next and they keep hearing it and it keeps being passed along. Newspapers and now podcasts will habitually use the information gleaned from reports already in the public to fashion their own reporting without fact-checking all those details that might have been gotten wrong the first time around. Fact-checking is something very specific, and it involves actual police reports and speaking with investigators and people familiar with the facts of the case. So imagine, if you will, media outlet after media outlet, using an initial media report or reports that are peppered with small and large misrepresentations, hunks of spackle shoved into holes, being slowly cemented into the history of a case that has gone unsolved for decades. Misrepresentations being passed around as facts. What happens is that the public's perception of that case might then be vastly different than the facts that law enforcement knows determine the truth. This kind of thing, what it underlines for me in deep, dark, black sharpie, is that people often form their opinions and biases about things based on information that's not entirely accurate. And we do this so much these days, in our everyday lives, without even recognizing we're doing it. I like facts. Cold, hard, right up in my grill, smack me in the face facts. I want to see them with my own eyes, and when I don't, I try to make it perfectly clear to you that I am guessing, or speculating, based on what I do know. In this case, Mike found that broken piece of Terrell's glasses only hours after the car was found abandoned, the same day that the incident occurred, not days later. 
Also, the first responding officer did speak to the couple who heard the female yelling, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Not long after he arrived on the scene. That doesn't appear to have been something that was put off for a long time, as Terrell's sister understood to be true. In the, in the press, it's this whole I didn't do it thing where someone was, a neighbor said yeah, they heard her, I actually her say. talked to those people too. Okay, tell me what that's about. <laughs> I did go see them and talk to them um, during that first initial, you know. Um, they told me, and they were a really nice couple when I met them, and I explained to them I'm her sister, and I heard that you guys seen the car that took her or heard the people or saw them or something. And they said they were real frustrated at the time because they had called the police several times and they hadn't come out and talked to them yet. Hmm. Uh-huh. So this was fueling my suspicion of a, of a cop did it. And now, mind you, at the same time, there were women being murdered and raped on Interstate 95. And it was a state trooper mm. who did the only reason he got caught was he left a woman for dead, a teacher. He left her for dead, and she, he thought she was dead. He really he faked it, and she crawled out on the interstate, and somebody saw her and stopped. Otherwise, he'd be raping people more. But mm. that's how he got caught, was because he left somebody alive, huh. and they were dead. And he was. this was during that same time. He actually got questioned in Terrell's murder. Now, I knew he didn't do it because the timeline was wrong. Mm -hmm. He was down south further doing somebody else. at the, It was the wrong timeline. But at that time, I can't remember exactly why now, but at that time I was like, why are they questioning him? That's a waste of time. He couldn't have done it, you know. Mm. But I knew that, that in every group, there are some bad apples. Yeah. You can't help that. You can try. Mm -hmm. I don't think all cops are bad. I used to be one. I love cops. I'm in their corner, you know. Mm -hmm. But I know that it's possible to have a rotten cop. I know that there's they're out there. Yeah. And there's a thin line, you know. I've I've had many many. I still have many many cops that are friends, and there's still that thin thin line. And um, so I'm, that's fueling the fire. When, when I've got a couple sitting there telling me they called the police, they called the police, they called the police, and the police didn't come out. And this is like several days later, and I'm talking to them, and the police still hasn't come out. You know, and I'm like going, what the hell? So I ask them, I go, what happened? And they said, well, she used to be married before this husband, and she's pregnant. And she goes, her first husband beat the crap out of her all the time. And so that's what she thought was going on. Because this was going on for quite some time outside. And because there's no houses and it's so desolate out there, sound travels really well. And she was like, I kept hearing it, kept hearing it. And so I, I'm waking my husband up and I said, please go out there and stop this. And he did not want to go. He was like, no, no, they'll stop soon. They'll, they'll go on down the road or whatever. Well, they're arguing or fighting or whatever. And um, she couldn't tell what they were saying. She just felt like it was a domestic abuse situation and it made her uncomfortable. And finally, she convinced him to get dressed and go out there and stop it. 
So he puts on his pants and he opens the door. And when he does, he sees the top of the vehicle taken on. And he had, all they heard was her saying, um, I didn't do anything. I didn't do it. She was screaming. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Which to me sounds like somebody getting arrested for something they didn't do. Well, the, 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 thing in the press it says i didn't do it i didn't do it do you know specifically yeah. if they said it or anything anything is what i was told okay. i didn't do anything i didn't do anything now let's get back to the scene suddenly mike the boyfriend finds a piece of terrell's glasses during the time police are searching the area and i'm guessing that's the moment when the investigators were like yeah we need to clear this scene and we need to do it now detective bay requested that family and friends leave the scene and returned to Terrell's residence so he could summon an evidence technician and also a canine team was requested at the same time. But you can see how this could become problematic later on, right? The first people police look at are the inner circle of a victim. Concentric circles. They always tell you this. They start close and they work their way out, and that's because more often than not, in the case of violent crimes, there's a motive that relates directly back to someone known to the victim. Family, friends, boyfriends, you know the drill. And here, they'd have to look hard at Mike, obviously. I'm told they did. But at the point where all parties, including the boyfriend, could have found themselves in court during the adjudication process, I do not think anyone would have been comfortable with a possible suspect or person of interest or, God forbid, defendant, being the one to find an important piece of evidence during a time when an actual police search was supposed to be going on. Having said all that, I also think it's important that we all apply our common sense and realize how quickly something like an abandoned vehicle can become foul play. This kind of thing is fluid. All investigations are. You don't know what you know until you know it. In the early minutes of an investigation, nobody really knows what they have and most cases have those moments where they wish something had not happened. Stuff that could have been done better. Stuff that they wish had been done differently or not at all. That's never going to change because when humans are at the helm, we are rarely going to achieve perfection. Police didn't know who the suspect or suspects were at this point. All they had was a fresh possible crime scene and worried family and friends showing up. And everybody there was genuinely there just trying to help. The first responding officer, Officer Howell, he didn't ask all those family and friends to show up, but that's what happened and he was just one officer calling for help as soon as he realized that he needed it. And then he had to wait for that help to arrive. In the end, I don't think it is helpful to blame any of the parties. It was a perfect storm of small mistakes that ended with, at the very worst, them possibly losing some evidence. At the very least, it ended with them losing some clarity on what they actually did know for sure to be true regarding the condition of the vehicle and surrounding area in the moments after the abduction. It is what it is. And I want to note that we have no way of knowing if there even were any footprints around Terrell's car. I have a theory, a personal theory, that suggests that the perp might not have even left the road, himself or his vehicle. And if that was the case, there wouldn't be any tire tracks or footprints from which to gather evidence anyway. I will expand upon this later. But I just want to say that I believe at the point it became fairly clear that they had foul play Things were tightened up and locked down fairly quickly. But listener, guess what? 
amid all of this seeming initial confusion, a witness showed up that I would argue might be the most important witness in this case. According to the timeline outlined in the first responders reports, about five minutes after Mike found that part of Terrell's glasses, another witness stopped by the crime scene. Rather than using his name, I will refer to this witness as the hunter for clarity. He lived nearby off Mimosa Avenue in Middleburg, and he said that about 5.45 a.m., he was driving westbound on State Road 218 near Mimosa when he saw a red Thunderbird driving in front of him. He told police that the vehicle was traveling at a normal rate of speed, and it appeared to have one occupant driving. Notice the time, 5.45. Smack in the middle of our 20-minute timeline. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. The hunter said the red Thunderbird then abruptly pulled off the side of the road for no apparent reason that he could see and came to a stop right there at the location where it would later be found. The hunter told the detective that as he drove by, he saw the driver to be a white male, indicated by the notation W M in the report, and he said the occupant wore glasses. He could give no further description. Most importantly, he said there were no other vehicles nearby or traveling in that area of State Road 218 at the moment when the vehicle pulled over. So basically, the hunter puts himself right there at the scene, passing in his car, at the same time frame that the neighbors say they heard someone screaming, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. So I guess now we need to ask ourselves why Terrell would suddenly pull off the road for no apparent reason with no other cars nearby. We know she didn't run out of gas, which seems to me the only likely scenario in which a woman would pull off the road of her own volition in the dark. The car was still running when the witness drove by the first time and when he drove by the second time before he turned back around and went to the Jiffy store to call the police. Not only does that tell us that the vehicle had not run out of gas, so that's not why she pulled over, but it also tells us that the car had not suddenly succumbed to some mechanical issue that rendered it stalled or unable to run. It was on. When she was interviewed again later that day, Terrell's mother was adamant that her daughter would not stop when traveling at night. In fact, she had once told her mother that she wouldn't even stop for a police officer. She'd drive all the way to her house and let them pull her over right there in her driveway. Also of note, remember this is 1990, Terrell didn't have a cell phone, none of her tires had blown, and nothing on her car suggests that she pulled over because something was happening with the vehicle. So this would lead me to believe that some outside source may have caused her to pull over. So are you thinking this is uh, random? Are you? Does it feel like someone followed her? Or you don't know based on what you've got? Don't know, don't know, and, and they look hard at the boyfriend. Uh-huh. ex-boyfriend people who she went out with prior you know four months leading up to this incident they had a lot of uh, suspects that they they talked to interviewed work associates uh, people at the bar where she had like a, a, a one bar that she liked to go to all the time mm-hmm. uh, and in the in the years following all their detectives went back when they were assigned this case to look at it contacted these individuals when DNA was, you know, they could test it and they got samples from uh, people and had them tested because uh, there was under her fingernail 
nails. The only evidence was fingernail clippings that when tested, it showed a male contributor. It's a crying shame that your murder goes unsolved longer than you've been alive. But Detective Schoonover has been going through this case piece by piece and firmly believes the truth is out there. Someone back there in 1990, you, you, you commit a murder, you don't keep quiet. You tell somebody. Somebody knows. And all these years, you know, the family going through this, that it's going to take someone to step up and make that phone call. A call that would finally answer the question, who murdered Terrell Orcutt? Katie Jeffries with photographer Jeff Renfro for First Coast News. In the next episode, Terrell is found. Stay tuned.